Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. Before we start, just a quick reminder that the Hindu's In Focus podcast is now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Castbox. That's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify and Castbox. So please do catch us there. And on to today's episode which is about US politics and there are a number of things to discuss with regard to that subject. If you've been following vaguely or closely, you'll know that the impeachment trial of President Donald Trump recently ended with an acquittal by the US Senate. This was followed by an extremely fractious state of the union speech that he gave. And then on the democratic side, the primary process to find a candidate to go up against Trump in the election, which is later in November this year, has already gotten off to a terrible start. There's confusion and controversy surrounding the Iowa caucus and who won there. And there were some surprises with the results, mainly the performance of Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who has really gained some early momentum, and conversely there's bad news for former Vice President Joe Biden who was seen as the best bet to beat Trump in the general election and actually performed really badly. So, I know that we mostly discuss domestic politics and news issues in this podcast, but we do have a lot of foreign reporting expertise here at the Hindu and we occasionally try and bring that to you as well. My guest today in fact is Narayan Lakshman who is a former US correspondent for the Hindu and is quite an expert on politics in the US. And so before we go back to discussing our own fractious politics over here, which I'm sure we'll start doing from next week. Here's a taste of some fractious politics from abroad. So Narayan, it's good to have you back. Thank um, you. The first, the first podcast that we ever did in this series, in fact, was our discussion on uh, Trump's impeachment when the whole process first started. Uh, I think we're some 30-40 episodes in now, yeah. so it's good to have you back after that whole process. And um, we've actually come full circle um, with with Trump's acquittal, which I think even back then we had kind of foreseen that that was most likely going to be uh, the outcome. So let's first start there. I mean, I think we'll try and make this episode more of a larger look at where the US is right now. But the Trump acquittal, has anything moved? Do we know anything more than what we knew last time? Um, not really too much because I think last time what we said is, you know, just given the way the Republicans control the uh, Senate and the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives, it was inevitably going to reach the point where, you know, the more progressive elements of the Democratic Party wanted to kind of nudge Speaker Nancy Pelosi into this impeachment motion. And uh, sure enough, the House passed it and, you know, he has that forever stain on his legacy of being an uh, impeached president. Um, And... At the same time, it was obvious that the Republican Party, given the kind of leadership vacuum that it had in the absence of Trump um, and no tall leader nationally who could carry the party on their shoulders, it was a pretty much a foregone conclusion that they would acquit him. And as we know, there are two parts to the impeachment process, the impeachment in the House and the conviction in the Senate or the acquittal. And in this case, it was an acquittal. So in that sense, it was it played out entirely along expected lines. I think what we might have been considered a bit of a surprise to some people was, and this is a question we did, uh, you posed last time, uh, is would uh, Nancy Pelosi and her fellow Democrats in the House actually take the plunge 
uh, was there a risk of blowback that it could actually backfire? Because as we, we, we spoke then, uh, Trump seems to bounce back from every such scandal and political crisis with renewed vigor and uh, scoring lots of political points. And I think, as I said, they, they decided to take the plunge. And um, indeed, he has come back quite strongly. But to be honest, his, his ratings were never really flagged through the process. He has still got a high uh, approval rating. And he has, of course, had a victory lap in the aftermath of the acquittal, waving the Washington Post at the national prayer meeting yeah. in front of the media. But uh, I, I think if we look a little further ahead, this is going to be something that he will bring up in a very tactical, strategic way in the election season. And I think it's going to play to his advantage, actually. Yeah, that was one of the things that struck me because I think when this process first started, there were polls in the US, they do polls on pretty much on a weekly basis on pretty much every issue. And there were some polls saying that most Americans wanted to hear more about what he had done with regard to the Ukraine call and those numbers seem to go up. But, you know, we're, we're here now and basically his approval numbers haven't dropped. I think most Americans in the end didn't want to see him impeach so, um, or removed from office. So I guess it does sort of beg the question, what was the point of the whole thing? And, does, and was it for the Democrats basically part of a larger election strategy to say we did actually go ahead with the impeachment? Because it doesn't seem to move the needle in terms of actual, the actual divide between Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. I mean, I think this goes back to the biggest question that's sort of plaguing American politics today, which is the extremely bitter polarization that has happened between, across these two parties and between them, uh, where they're kind of talking past each other on all of the policy issues that, each, that, they, that they hold dear to, to, to themselves. And the problem is for each party has always been about winning the undecideds or the independent voters. Uh, as we know, you have red states and blue states, but you have the purple states, which are the swing states, and winning over states like Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, uh, Florida, others. Uh, the, this has been really the key to the White House. And I think the Democratic plan might be to say, look, you have now uh, one, a president who you know has got this really bad sort of black mark on his record of impeachment. And of course, they will keep bringing up that call with uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky, where, you know, he has been accused of abuse of power. He has rather been charged with that uh, in the House. Um, and he was also um, charged with obstructing Congress in the course of their investigation. Uh, and the Democrats are going to make the argument heading into the November 2020 election that you cannot have the re-election of a president who has such a stain on his record. You cannot do that. That is unprecedented and it should not happen. So this is obviously a political sort of, uh, just political ammunition, uh, a salvo uh, on their side that they will keep bringing up uh, as we go forward into the election season. Okay. And the next thing to discuss, of course, is, you know, simultaneously, I think pretty much on the day that he was acquitted, he also delivered the State of the Union, which... Um, and then there was that whole visual of uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi tearing up, tearing up the speech. Um, I'm guessing that this is extremely unprecedented in terms of the acrimony that now exists between both parties. Um, has it ever been like that? Look, it's always sort of part of the system. And, you know, in their wisdom, the founding fathers of the U.S. Uh, deliberately set up the complex checks and balances structure 
within the government that that they wanted to see as restraints or a reason, reasonable restraint on power, political power. And so you have the system of Congress, which is the House and the Senate. You have the, the judiciary, which is supposed to be independent. And you have the White House, the executive. Um, and very often, the party that is in control of one or more of these uh, units of power within the U.S. government will, will be different to the party that controls other parts. And so you have hostility all the time. One common manifestation is the federal government shutdowns that you see. I mean, this, you know, people who are not so familiar with U.S. politics perhaps raise a quizzical eyebrow every one of the, you know, somewhere 20 plus times that the federal government has gone into uh, or threatened to be shut down because they ran out of funding. And that is because of partisan stalemates that regularly pop up on Capitol Hill and between uh, Congress and the White House. Um, and so in that sense, uh, Americans are actually quite used to a level of bitterness. Yeah. Uh, but this, as you're rightly sort of asking, has taken it to a new level. I think uh, we all saw the campaign of 2016 and how it rubbed very many different parts of the population uh, the wrong way. Uh, and this has reached a sort of climax now because we are we are coming up to the to the second election of Donald Trump potentially. Uh, at the same time, I think the Democrats are equally frustrated. It's almost like a mirror image of what you have here where the opposition is a little weak. The Democrats are frustrated by the fact that they don't have a leader of the stature of former President Barack Obama to take on uh, Mr. Trump. So you, we can come, we'll come to this further in the discussion, I'm sure. But the candidates who are sort of populating the field right now don't yet seem to have that sort of national level heft to take him on. And so this level of bitterness, as you said, Pelosi ripping up the speech um, on camera very deliberately, uh, all of that reflects their frustration in that regard. Yeah. So, yes. So speaking of candidates to take on Trump, the uh, Democratic primaries have begun. And um, first up in that was the Iowa caucus. There's a very complex discussion to be had about how the caucuses work, which I don't think we should necessarily get into, perhaps. But let's just assume that it wasn't a complicated system and it's a, you know, the people voted and they wanted to pick, um, you know, a winner who would get delegates from Iowa. Um, there's already been a lot of confusion. Um, both Bernie Sanders and, um, and Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, who's the youngest person, I think, to ever run, or he would be the youngest person to become president for sure. He's, he's 37 years old. Um, both of them are claiming victory. Um, so where does, so should, should we sort of talk about each of them? Um, so I, and we'll, we'll also talk about former Vice President Joe Biden, right. perhaps after that, who was expected to do better. But um, what's, where does Bernie Sanders stand right now? Because he narrowly missed out on the nomination last time to Hillary, but he has sort of energized a lot of people, especially a lot of young people. And I think the whole discussion about healthcare and um, you know, free college tuition, all of that is kind of, he brought that into the conversation. But is he, is he still a strong contender this time around? I think he's very much a strong contender. And you're absolutely right to look backward at the 2016 election and how he narrowly lost out to Hillary Clinton on the nom for the nomination. Um, I think his message of, you know, of being a democratic socialist and of actually seeing those values of a democratic socialist manifested in policies such as Medicare and Medicaid, uh, just healthcare sector more broadly. He was sort of leaning towards the same things that President Obama did when he brought about the uh, Affordable Care Act. 
um, you know, reigning in the excesses of Wall Street. So all of these things have very firmly put the legacy of Bernie Sanders on the map, whether or not he goes on to be become president uh, now or in the future. Um, but and at the same time, it's, impo- it's important to recognize that he stands a little bit apart from what you could call the, Demo- the Democratic Party mainstream. And actually, peop- uh, candidates like uh, Buttigieg um, uh, and indeed Biden represent that mainstream much more in that they do believe that the engine of capitalism, sort of the rugged individualism and uh, sort of personal freedoms that, uh, that are so dear to American enterprise, uh, these are the core values of the democratic mainstream. Uh, uh, people like uh, Bernie Sanders and indeed Elizabeth Warren stand a little bit away from that mainstream in the, uh, to, to the extent that their focus is much more on rectifying the excesses of this capitalist model. So, you know, the, the Great Recession of 2008 and the financial collapse, they see they are still talking about how, uh, you know, the too big to fail model didn't work and no one was actually, you know, sort of prosecuted. Uh, or well, n- many people who should have been prosecuted were not. And that, that's what they would argue. Uh, and so their focus is much more on remedying those gaps within the system. So to that extent, they stand a little bit apart from each other, these two sets of candidates. Um, but I think to answer your question, Bernie Sanders has a lot of momentum behind him. The Iowa caucus actually reflects that while he was expected to kind of bubble up to the top of the ranks, uh, you know, he's put on a fierce battle with Buttigieg, uh, Buttigieg. And as you said, the outcome is not fully clear at this point, although the caucus actually was on uh, February 3rd. So we're more than four days in and we still don't know the result. Um, the other complication that happened was with the app that was used, yeah. a smartphone app on which the you know people could feed in their preferences uh, by this uh, company rather ominously named Shadow Inc., uh, which <laughs> <laughs> perhaps they should have taken a hint from the name, but it uh, kind of led to a complete confusion and chaos in terms of sort of just it's the way it malfunctioned and then the results couldn't be sort of brought out and be formalized. So... Regardless of that, it, it's looking very much like Bernie Sanders probably has 11 delegates uh, and uh, Buttigieg also has 11 delegates with Elizabeth Warren in third place with five delegates and uh, Biden a very surprising and quite uh, unpleasantly surprising for him, just two delegates. So this is sort of a very broad sweep view, as you correctly pointed out, when you delve down into the nitty gritty of how these caucuses work, the Iowa caucus in particular, it's extraordinarily complicated. Yeah. There are multiple levels of voting that happen. Uh, then there's the concept of state uh, delegate equivalents, where they try to map what happens in the county or in the precincts um, to, the, to the state and then the, to the Democratic uh, National Convention, where the nominee gets finally decided. I think all we need to take away from this is, at this point, uh, Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg are in the lead. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is holding on to the middle of the rank, but uh, 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 former Vice President uh, Joe Biden has fallen quite far behind. Uh, So I think that's the picture that we're seeing at the end of this first week. Right. Um, So so Pete Buttigieg, um, what really is really striking to me is that all of the people who are the front runners, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, even Trump, of course, on the other side, all people in their 70s. And this guy is 37. Um, that's, quite a, that's quite a huge jump to make just in terms of, you know, looking at people, I would think, and, and seeing, okay, who's the leader 
and you look at experience and that kind of thing. Um, how how did, did he come out of the blue? He's, he's been around for a while, and I, yeah. I could see from news reports that he's been gaining momentum. Was was this expected? Was he expected to do so well? I don't think so. I mean, there's a plethora of uh, opinion polls, as you also earlier said about Trump. Uh, you know, and the average of them, I would say, did not place him at the top of the ranks. It it placed him more maybe third or fourth place at the very best. Mm. So he has surprised certainly. Uh, one thing I'll say, Americans tend to vote not at all on policy issues or even record or experience. They vote on character. Right. That is sort of what sways them the most and that intensifies as you go through the election season, which is why so much weight gets attached to these controversies and scandals. For example, with Hillary, the whole so-called email scandal yeah. and um, when the FBI director Comey spoke about it at the last minute, it really rocked the boat. Uh, and similarly with Trump and the Russia issue. So... That way, I think if you look at it, uh, Pete Buttigieg has a fair shot at this because he does come across as a fresh face. He hasn't so far used terms such as draining the swamp or being an outsider. But in that sense, he truly is an outsider to national politics. And that, while it can serve as a, it could turn out to be a disadvantage in the final reckoning. At this point, you know, early on in the race, it is everybody likes that fresh face, a young face, someone who is in a Washington outsider and, you know, potentially could be uh, a breath of fresh air, uh, which is what is always needed. Americans always want that out of every election because they always, regardless of which party they belong to, they share a deep disdain for Washington, its stalemates, its underhand dealings, and generally what happens, uh, especially on Capitol Hill. Right. So somebody who is really not an outsider Perhaps the ultimate insider is former Vice President Joe Biden, who I think has been in politics for over 40 years, something like that, has been a senator for ages, was, has written various policy bills, uh, was vice president for eight years, and generally speaking, was supposed to be the guy with the most name recognition, who had that sort of power to get people to vote for him, and was also perceived to be the guy who was most likely to beat President Trump in an election. And so this is a really bad start, like fourth position. I think he was expected to get at least second. So, yeah, so where, where does he stand? Because if he's done so badly in the first round of the, of the caucuses, of the primaries, um, how does that affect him going forward? I think it really could affect him quite badly um, because, like I mentioned earlier, the early phase, which is basically states such as Iowa, uh, New Hampshire next, which is actually his hometown um, as well, and uh, also Nevada and South Carolina. These early phase states in the primaries don't have that much to offer in terms of delegate numbers, but they actually winnow down the contestant pool quite significantly by giving some one or two of them perhaps a huge amount of momentum. And... Uh, at this point, those who drop out quickly feel the impact in terms of their fundraising capabilities, which again limits the amount of TV ad spend that they can have, uh, which limits the uh, which limits any other kind of ad advertising, in fact, or even lobbying efforts. So they stand to lose quite heavily in these early rounds, and so I think for Biden, this could turn out to be uh, this could be quite a bad blow. The second phase, really, uh, and this is a little mo bit more about the process, uh, includes the March 3rd uh, primaries, which is basically 14 states. It's called Super Tuesday. 
and there's something like uh, 1,300 plus uh, delegates up for grabs. And by that time, those candidates that remain in the pool are then, you know, talking about going neck to neck. It's going to become all about the counting of your delegates versus mine, the prospect of super delegates at the convention and all of that. So I think this is quite damaging, actually, for in a, in a nutshell, for Biden to have come out fourth uh, in, in this list. And I think it's going to hurt quite a bit unless within the next uh, maybe three more remaining primaries and caucuses, he does. He has a remarkable turnaround, which is, again, I think a little unlikely. Um, I think the bigger context also should be kept in mind here, which is the Biden and the Biden family are also at very much at the heart of the whole impeachment scandal. Yeah. Uh, obviously, they did not come out, come out tainted or anything in the, in the manner that President Trump did through the impeachment. But it was the investigation of the Biden family's alleged dealings in Ukraine, particularly Joe Biden's own son, Hunter Biden, that uh, President Trump and his team at the White House were trying to go after. So I think while there was no sort of shadow of suspicion cast on, 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 the, on the Bidens in that regard, it is the subjective impression about the Bidens, again, as very deep-seated insiders of the, during the past eight years of President Obama, that will really have an impact on the undecided and independent voters. And I think without even saying as much explicitly at this point, President Trump has sort of struck a blow in the Democratic race against a potentially very strong contender uh, in, in, the, in, the, in this process, in this process of the impeachment. Yeah, and um, one person, of course, who's been sort of waiting like a hawk for any kind of Biden slip-up is uh, the former New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg, who I think is only going to enter the race at the Super Tuesday stage or something like that, but is kind of seen as the alternative in that kind of establishment Democrat, um, you know, not rock the boat too much um, mold. Um, I don't know. Should we, should we talk about him now? Is it too early? Um, is, he, is, he a, is he a factor at all? I think he could be a factor. But at this point, he is nowhere in the serious reckoning between the candidates who've kind of thrown their hat in the ring because not so much the funding. You know, he has his own personal finances and he's maybe a little like, like Trump in a way. He's a little less dependent on uh, fundraising to that extent, uh, let's say, as maybe Elizabeth Warren is. Uh, but at the same time, uh, to my mind, what goes against him the most is the fact that he is seen as an insider. Uh, even when I was, uh, you know, based in the U.S. as uh, the U Hindu's U.S. correspondent uh, during the Obama years, it was evident to me by the end, towards the end of those years, that the mood was turning into something so radically. Uh, they were look. They were searching for something. There was the American voter was searching for something well beyond Washington. They literally wanted to grab Washington by the shoulders and shake them up. Which is why someone like Trump, uh, notwithstanding all of the controversial things he's said and done, not not just managed to get in, but got in with a sort of soaring uh, majority. And I think, I think the very same sort of thinking on the part of the voters is going to go against someone like Michael Bloomberg, seen as too much of. Sorry to put it, but he's definitely on the older side as well. Yeah. So, you know, you get seen as someone who's been around too much. You've been in the swamp too much, to use Trump's word. And um, you would do too many deals which would not benefit the American middle class. If I'm really boiling it down to sort of basic sentiment, that is the feeling and the mood. And so anyone from 
Pete Buttigieg to Bernie Sanders to Donald Trump. These three names stick out to me. Even Elizabeth Warren, uh, for all her sort of progressive politics and you know, she'd like to think of herself similar as uh, similar to Sanders. She's actually quite different. She's pretty much, in that way, a bit of a mainstream, uh, you know, Democrat. She's been around too much um, in the Senate. She used so. to be a Republican, I, I read. Yeah, that's even worse in a way. You've <laughs> even, you know, crossed party lines and you've been comfortable with that. And Yeah, that's, um, that, that was really surprising to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's, it's, not, it's not, I would say, uh, Mike Bloomberg is going to have to really work hard to, to get into this race in a meaningful way. Right. That, that's great. I think we should check in again after the Super Tuesday. But what's next on the, the primary schedule just before we end? The next one is New Hampshire. Then we have Nevada. And mm. then I believe it's South Carolina. I think these are the early states. Um, and people watch them very, very closely to see, look at these rankings and uh, understand who's pulling ahead and who's dropping out. And then there's the impact on fundraising right away. Cool. So I suppose we'll catch up at some point again. Narayan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. Okay.